This podcast is brought to you by Pearson, the company behind the Self, Goldman Fristo, and the brand new PPVT5 and EVT3. These new, easy-to-use vocabulary assessments are brief and reliable for children age two and a half all the way up to adults age 90 and beyond. Learn more about these new tests at pearsonclinical.com slash exceptional. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined by Chris Bouguet. How are you doing, Chris? I'm excited, Rachel. I'm excited. It's been a very busy week for me. I know. You have some big news. Yeah, yeah. So I started a new job. I still work for the same school district, but I am now the uh, what's called the assistive technology specialist. So I'm somewhat of the, the leader of our assistive technology team now. I've been with the same school district for, this is my 20th year. I'll get a little pin this year that says 20 years. Uh, but this is a kind of a step towards administration where um, you get to kind of lead the efforts of the team. Uh, we've, we've always worked as a, as a team that has been like, everyone is very collaborative and it's a, it's a space where everyone gets to kind of share their ideas and we do it, you know, together. It's always that way. It's just now I have that, a uh, the official title of yeah so how does this impact your practice i'll say or you're are you going to still be working with kids or how, how does that work yeah great question so uh yes i hope so you know i, I always have that fear that uh administrators they leave the classroom to go to the administration building or go into administration and they don't get to be with the kids as much and i i, I fear that will happen but i'm going to work my tail off to make sure that doesn't happen I, my plan is to work out in the schools as much as possible and be with the, the the speech therapists and the teachers as much as possible i mean what our role is like i've said many times in the in the past on the, on the podcast is to coach people on how to use aac and technology beyond that it's not just aac but that seems to be our focus for the last number of years. It's been the fire burning the, the hottest or brightest. Uh, so we've been working on that a lot. And so my job, I think, will be to kind of coach the people doing the coaching, you know. Um, so it's a step removed, but I still plan to be like a boots on the ground sort of person. I'm not surprised by that at all. Um, and I think that the best administrators are the ones who still have a really good pulse on what's going on, right? I think that anytime you kind of step away from the clinical practice, um, you start losing the insight and the practicality that you you know when you're a clinician or you're kind of in, in a clinical situation because um, these things evolve, right? And I feel like that's always my biggest fear is um, because I do, I have, you know, therapists that work for me and I kind of definitely have taken a step back from my practice because I'm doing all types of online education and this podcast and all these things. But it's really important for me to stay in the clinical practice because I feel like that's what gives me all the insight, you know, and I, I constantly want to keep growing as a therapist. I don't want to stop that. You know, I think that has been maybe a little bit of my my, my claim to fame, if you will, is that I, I've always been a, the boots on the ground sort of person. I had never been just a just a consultant. I've always like if I go and do a presentation on a Wednesday, well, chances are Thursday I'll be back at school, you know, and I'm telling stories about things that happened on a Tuesday, you know, uh, and I think that will continue to happen here on the podcast and in presentations, because like I said, I'm going to have be sharing stories with of, of these experiences in the classroom just from a administrative point of view, uh, as opposed to the direct person doing the coaching of the, of the professionals. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited for you. And to say that you're going to fill the leader role amazingly, I mean, it's, it's, it's no surprise that you have this position that was offered to you. And I know that you're going to do amazing because you're a leader, Chris Bouguet. 
<laughs> Thanks, Rachel. Now, there was something else that happened there, too, is that the day that I started was Tuesday, January 15th, which is also my birthday. So I, I, I turned a year older. I, I, I clocked another orbit around the sun. So. I, I know. And actually, we recorded that day, and I was so mad that I didn't know before we recorded because I totally would have embarrassed you on the podcast. And Oh, that's right. I totally forgot. I know. I sent you a message after the fact. I was like, hey, Facebook told me it's your birthday. I had no idea. <laughs> well, happy belated birthday. Well, thank you. Thank you. Now, so tell me about your interview today. What, what, this is someone that you got to interview? Yes, I'm really excited. I had Jason Lembeck, who is a, he's a tech guy. Um, so he's creating an app for uh, parents, uh, specifically geared towards parents. Um, his app is very comprehensive. Not only does it address um, kind of the, the digital housekeeping of all of the documentation that you get when you have a child with special needs, the IEPs, all of the evaluations, it's kind of a hub to keep all of that information in a digital way. Um, but even more so, so um, the app also has all types of advocacy um, kind of intertwined into it um, and parent education. So his goal is to really help empower parents knowing what their rights are um, and then giving them real support, you know, how to incorporate certain things into the IEP, um, just educating families on what their rights are um, in the whole IEP process. So I'm really excited about the app he's creating. Um, it's, it's local right now to Los Angeles um, with, with hopes to eventually expand once they, um, you know, get research and, and kind of figure out what's working, what's not working. Um, but I was really excited to be introduced to him and then realized that he actually has a son um, with a rare genetic condition. Um, and so he is an AAC user, um, his son is. And so we talk a lot in the interview about the whole process of, you know, going through trying to find a diagnosis for, you know, a rare genetic condition and also what it's like on the parent side, um, which I've talked to you at length about, Chris, is I think that we need more parent perspectives as clinicians because it helps inform our practice. Um, sometimes I think we kind of get tunnel vision on our goals and all the things that we want to see happen and we forget we're working with a family. We're working with a family that has all types of other things going on besides just speech therapy. Um, and so I think any Anytime we can hear the, the insight of a parent um, and a parent's story, it's really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So how did, does he get into the story about how he first, uh, his first experiences with AAC? Yeah, he does. Um, so he, his son is using now doing um, some trialing with uh, eye gaze, um, but the initial stages going through, you know, of course, starting with choice making and, um, you know, his, his son has complex communication needs. So trying to figure out um, what kind of system or what kind of technology support would be helpful was really challenging. And I think still is at, at some level. Um, but he talks a lot about how one clinician, one speech therapist really went above and beyond for his family and what an impact that made. Um, and so we kind of keep circling back throughout the interview to that notion that it just takes a little bit of extra effort on the clinician side um, to just like loop parents in and tell them, you know, share a little bit of what they know. Um, and also I think share maybe things that they don't know, the ability to refer out. Um, so if you're a clinician and you don't really know about AAC, or maybe you know some about AAC, but you don't know about eye gaze or eye tracking, being able to say, okay, this is an area where I don't have enough information or enough education. So I need to make the right referral so that this family can get the support that they need. Um, and so anyway, he talks about that a lot. And 
it really, um, it really made, uh, it tugged at my heartstrings, I think a little bit, um, because it just, it, to hear his story was really, it was really emotional for me actually. And I really just enjoyed having his, his perspective and to hear his story. Um, and so I'm really excited to share it with all, all of our listeners. You know, that, that theme that you said, that's, or it's a theme that keeps coming up in my world, I guess, is this idea that the, of the one clinician or the one educator or the one person that, uh, did something different and, and changed the, the, the life of a family or a person. Like uh, a couple of years ago, I got to hear Martin Pistorius talk, who is, um, if, you, if you're not familiar with him, he wrote the book Ghost Boy. It, it tells the story of how when he uh, was a typically developing boy who then uh, was misdiagnosed and, and um, ended up uh, becoming nonverbal for like 12 years of his life and uh, uh, immobile, just in a wheelchair and and people would come and they would talk uh, about him in front of him and they would say things that were extremely painful and hurtful and they thought he couldn't understand and, and he was but he was aware the entire time and he tells the story about how there was this one therapist that said yeah i'm not going to do that i'm going to treat you like you're here i'm going to start believing that you can communicate if we get, yeah, give you the right right tools and enough time and right instruction it wasn't for that one person to make a difference, then he might not have started to make the progress that he made and come come back out um, of where he was. Uh, and so that sounds like this again, right? It's th- th- what you were just saying with Jason, that same, same thing, same story. Some one individual is the one that made the difference. And so I, I always remember hearing that story from from Martin and think, well, I want to be that one individual, you know, I don't want to be the one that's not, that's not making the difference. Right. Like I said, no, no one ever gets into speech therapy for the money. You know, no one ever gets into education because you want to be rich. You know what I mean? You do it because you want to help kids and families and you want to be the one that says, yeah, I thought differently and, and now I help this person. I couldn't agree more. Um, and, uh, and a lot of times I think, you know, we all want to be that clinician, but we have so many things pulling us in so many directions that it's hard to figure out how can I, how can I spend a little extra time or a little extra effort when time is so valuable and I don't have enough of it. Um, and so I was actually talking with Jason and, um, I can't remember if this was off air or on air. Um, but we talked a lot about how, the consultation and the, the the parent training and parent education is such an important part of the process. Um, and so when I'm working with, you know, CFY clinicians or speech therapy assistants or, you know, speech therapists, I'm saying, you know, take 10 minutes out of that session time to talk with families. Um, you know, and I, I think that's something that we don't really think about. And I think that I was telling Jason, I think that a lot of times clinicians need that permission from the parent because um, they have this idea in their head that, you know, I, I have to do 45 minutes a week and I have to, that has to be direct service time. Um, so how can we think outside of the box a little bit um, and just have an open conversation with parents? Listen, I, how often would you like to communicate? What's the best way for us to communicate, um, you know, is it phone calls? Is it emails? Is it videos? There's all different ways that we can communicate the strategies that we're using. And I think thinking outside of the box um, when it comes to service delivery is really important. Um, and, and, and that might mean changing the IEP to have 15 minutes of consult time 
every, every month, or I'm not sure what that means, but I, I think that the first step is talking with parents. So, you know, if you're in the school setting, introducing yourself to, to families at the beginning of the school year and just having an open conversation about, you know, here's the allotted session time. How can we incorporate, you know, weekly check-ins, monthly check-ins, whatever the family thinks is good and you guys kind of agree on. Um, so I think that's a really practical way to start carving out the time. And I think that that's something that we don't always think about as clinicians. We just think, okay, 45 minutes a week, that's what I do. Um, you know, if, if we, if we do 35 minutes a week, but 10 minutes is spent on a phone call with mom or dad or teacher or OT or whoever it might be, think about the impact that can make. So I have been spending some time lately preparing for FETC and ATIA. And one of the sessions that I'm doing at ATIA is with some other people, Carol Zingari is going to be there and Carolyn Musselwhite. And anyway, the, the idea of the, is, of the session is it's called an AAC spotlight and you have 15 minutes to present one or two problems uh, that are happening in, with implementation and then a couple solutions for those problems. And so I've been just today, before we jumped on, I was putting that slide deck together. Uh, and and my one of the problems that I'm tackling is this idea that transitions kill language development. Like, you know, you're in, you're in fifth grade and you get the teacher all trained and they know what they're doing. And then they jump over to sixth grade and that teacher and a new speech therapist, and they might not know anything about your communication device. But the one consistent person, the, the solution slide that I'm putting together for this presentation is, the parents, the families, they are the bridge to through all of that. You know, the, the chances that a family member is going to leave the, the situation is a lot less than a teacher or a therapist. And so that really points out the necessity of spending time with the family and training them and making sure they know uh, what they can do best in, in their life to make it better for their family member. Yeah. And, you know, Jason, actually, when he was talking about all of this, he mentioned, um, he gave the analogy, the parent is like the quarterback and the, the parent really needs to be the one driving the ship, which I wholeheartedly believe, um, you know, because therapists come and go, teachers come and go, all the practitioners that work with a child, they come and then they leave. Um, and the only thing that stays the same is the parent. And so really getting the parents on board and understanding where, you know, where you're headed. Um, I love to give parents the kind of long-term vision. It, you know, yes, of course, we're going to start here. And, and I think that's where, you know, clinicians, they're happy to sit in an IP meeting and talk about the goals for the upcoming year. But what about the conversation about where are we going to be in five years, 10 years? You know, wh what's the end goal? Um, you know, because I think it's really important to give parents that big picture so that they know what these little steps are working towards doesn't matter if the SLP from this year isn't the same as the one from last year, um, because at some level, the parents know, here's the things that we need to work on. Here's the small stepping stones that will lead us to these larger goals. Um, and so I think that's just a really important thing to remember. Um, how can we have those conversations with parents? Yeah, I can really see the parents becoming the, the lead trainer, if you will, when those transitions happen, because they are going to happen and they're, they're inevitable. And so there can be a certain strategies could be like, you should know these 10 things about my, my child. You, you should know these 10 things about my child's AAC system. If you don't know, I can give you these resources, but I could also encourage you to, to find out for yourself and own this. You know, I don't want to put uh, an extra burden or strain on the parents because I could hear that. Oh my gosh, you want me to do that too? But you are the parents are the consistent bridge from, from transition to transition. So if we can empower them as early as possible, outfit them with the tools necessary, 
or like Jason said, they can be the quarterback that, uh, that passes the ball off to everybody else. I love that analogy. I know. He said it, and I was like, that's genius. Um, yeah. And I completely, I completely agree. Um, it's, it's not that we want to put more you know, on parents who I know are already working so hard in every area, right? Um, but it's just so important because you know, I, we need to have that, that stability. Um, the other thing we talked about, uh, Jason and I, was the therapist that, you know, made such a profound impact on his, um, his son's life. She took the time to figure out what he was really interested in. And he talks a lot about preferences and motivation and things like that. And so I was telling him that, you know, it's really great as a parent to have, you know, just like a one sheet. Um, and I'm envisioning kind of like a picture, like a, a funny picture of the child, um, and all of the things that they love so that it's really easy to just send an email, like, you know, welcome to our team, new speech therapist or new OT or new pediatrician or whatever it is. Um, and then very easily able to see, oh, okay. So he really likes this and that, and all these things, because as a clinician, when you get a new case, the first half of, you know, therapy is just figuring out like what, what makes you, you know, laugh and inspires you and all these things. So if we can give that to new clinicians, um, it can also help ease that transition um, because building rapport is the most important thing. And if we have some insight into that, it goes a long way. Yeah. So a couple tools there that I think could help just uh, if people aren't familiar with them. One of them is called PictoChart and it's an infographic maker. So you could take a picture of a student or even if uh, it's not a picture of the student, it could generate like a little avatar of the student. So it's not their picture. And it makes it real easy to put all sorts of uh, bullet points around the outside of, of this picture. Uh, another one is called Easily that I've used before. That's another uh, infographic maker. And then, of course, there's like stuff like Canva, which is, um, again, people, a lot more people are from, probably familiar with Canva than those infographics. But those are great ways to just to make a quick graphic with some text points and, uh, and some images. And then the one other tool that I'd like to throw out is this idea uh, and maybe this is what Jason's getting at a little bit with the uh, app that he developed for, like you said, in the Los Angeles area. But something that the schools can use is many schools have gone Google now. And we have Google Drive or what are called Team Drives. So one thing we've been sort of thinking about, kicking around, just out in the, in, in the, in the world, is the idea that you could take a Team Drive which and, and put all the students' materials that you make, uh, progress notes, uh, essentially create a portfolio that follows a student from year to year to year, or you could put it in the student's Google Drive that the teachers have access to. But it's a way of organizing all of that information, again, to make transitions last. So when you, when you inherit a student, you could go to that drive and you'd know, well, okay, every student has a drive like this. Let me go in there. And that's where you find the picto chart that you made. That's where you find the, uh, all the materials, you know, any storybooks, any, anything, anything that the student really likes. I love that. I think that we now have the technology capacity to do things like that very easily. Um, and so there's no reason that we shouldn't be sharing information like that. You know, we share IEPs and goals and all those things. And don't get me wrong, they're important. But things like motivation, and Jason actually, I think, it frames it strengths and loves. Um, so the student's strengths and also what they love. That's the fuel for the communication fire, right? Like that's what we need to figure out how we can create situations and opportunities for kids to get excited about communicating. Um, and so I think it's just something that's really important. And I love these resources that you gave, Chris. I've never heard of PictoCharter easily, but I wrote them down and I will be looking at them after we hop off this podcast. 
Well, check them out. And if anyone is listening and makes something like that, please share it with us over on the Facebook group. Or if you're using Google Team Drives or Google Drive in the way that we just described, let us know. Let us know. I'd love to know some tips and tricks and pitfalls that we could avoid for other people that want to try and do that. So please uh, go over to the Facebook group and, and hit us up there. Yeah. So Chris, we're also presenting at a conference soon, an online conference. We are the SLP to be from Exceptional Ed. Yes, we will be presenting Thursday, February 7th. It's at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Um, And I'm really excited. It's called the ABCs of AAC. So it's going to be a foundational course. Um, So if you know any SLPs who are in grad school or fresh out of grad school um, or anybody interested in learning about AAC who doesn't know much about it, um, definitely sign up for the course. We will link to that in the show notes um, if you're interested in signing up. Um, We also have a brand new course on Exceptional Ed. Um, We're doing a podcast to PD, which means that you can listen to our podcast and then go to Exceptional Ed and you can take a quiz. It's a 10 question quiz, um, pay $25 and you can get an hour CEU. The first course is uh, all about core words. So we will also link to that. Um, So to access the course, you can go to bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y, T-W-T core P-D. And we'll link to that in the show notes. um, So you guys have access to that. But if you already are a listener of the podcast, it's a perfect way to get those CEUs that you need. So without further ado, let's hear Rachel's interview with Jason Lembeck. Hi, I'm Matt Hott, one of the hosts of Speech Science, a weekly podcast bringing you all the information that you can handle related to speech sciences and disabilities. Michelle Wintering, Michael McLeod, and I interview leaders and difference makers in the field. Every Tuesday, we drop a new episode. You can find us on iTunes, Android, and on our website, www.speechscience.org slash speech science podcast. Join us as we try to find the answers to the question. What is communication? Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, and I'm so excited. I'm joined today by Jason Lembeck. After selling his latest technology business, Jason has started a company serving children with special needs. Jason's son, Noah, has a genetic disorder that introduced his family to the special needs world. This experience inspired Jason and the Special X team to build a digital solution that combines the best knowledge about each child's specific needs with a care concierge service that aligns the child's entire caregiving team around better outcomes. Jason has also has a podcast with his good friend, Elizabeth Aquino, called Who Lives Like This? Jason, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on. I'm a a big fan of the show and uh, really excited to have the conversation. Absolutely. So just introduce yourself a little bit, Um, you know, tell us what you do and all about your app. I'm so excited to to hear all the details. Cool. Well, I'll start with the family. We have a a pretty... uh, Pretty wild and crazy household here. We're, we're here in Los Angeles. My wife works for uh, WACMA. She's a curator of the LA County Museum, and that's about as cool as it gets in terms of a gig. So I'd say. Yeah, we all have fun hanging out at the museum with her. Uh, and then we have uh, three boys, uh, a three-year-old, a six-year-old, and an almost 11-year-old. And my oldest son, Noah, uh, has a rare genetic disorder, as you mentioned, and he... It, it's about 350 kids in the world have been diagnosed with it, or people have been diagnosed with it. So it's still sort of in that 
know that we have a diagnosis. It's not, there's not a lot of information about mm -hmm. the different um, sort of presentations of it, but it, it basically presents itself as cerebral palsy. So he's nonverbal, uh, he's nonmobile, he's in a wheelchair. Uh, but I always say he has more grit and grace than uh, any other person I've met. He's got probably a total of 10 or 11 people working with him at any given time, and they all love working with him because he's a hard worker and a, a smile that will melt your heart. So, um, so that's, the, that's the home front. Yeah, and so you guys decided to, to build an app. So tell us about Special X yep. is the name of the app, correct? Yeah, that's right. And, and just the quick background on me, I've been doing technology startups for about 20 years. Um, pretty much all of that was in marketing and e-commerce. I was lucky enough with a really good friend of mine to build and, and sell a company uh, about three years ago. And after we sold it, we said, if we're going to do this crazy startup thing again, we should do something a little bit more meaningful than helping people sell stuff online. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, it's a good, good job if you could get it. Um, so we kept coming back to, we want to do something purposeful, something meaningful that will have a big impact on people's lives. And, you know, it was just staring me in the face that uh, as our family struggled through finding the best medical care for my son, finding the best therapeutic care for my son, finding the best education environment. We just, as we look through all of that and all the challenges that we had to go through and even the challenges we face today, we said, there's got to be a better way. I mean, this is just such a pain in the butt. You know, there's a recent report that came out that 40% of special needs parents quit their jobs um, to wow. take care of their children. I yeah. didn't realize that's so high. Yeah, it's nuts. And, then, and even the parents who have full-time jobs are spending 10, 20 hours a week. So that was the inspiration for the app was how do we build technology and combine it with people to help parents get better care education for their children. Um, and the, the basic framework is we're building a digital binder. So ditch the three ring binder. You can keep that at home if you like, but you don't have to log it around. We built this software so that you can upload all your information about your child, the IEP, therapeutic notes, um, medical records, and then share that with uh, the team that's supporting the child. So they'll all stay on the same page. Um, and that's an iPhone app and, and web accessible for the parent and the team, but the parent owns it, they control it. And then the second thing we built into the app is this idea of we're hiring people who've become experts in the system, how to navigate insurance, how to deal with all the government organizations you have to deal with, how to get a, the best IEP possible for your child. Uh, so we've hired parents who quit their day jobs that have become experts in this and they serve our customers. So they, they'll help them prep for their IP, they'll help them appeal the insurance denial. And so the two of those things together, the digital binder and, the, and these, we call them navigators, are basically supporting parents. We're live in LA, um, Los Angeles with a, with a pilot. So we're just getting started, getting feedback. And it's just been amazing, like the, the feedback from parents and you know, the impact that we're having, even with that small group has been so inspiring and, and exciting to be a part of. Yeah, you know, and I think that the, you know, obviously a digital binder, we're in 2019, it's important right. to have things digital. And I, and I see those binders and some of the schools that I'm at still have those binders, oh, yeah. um, you know, tracking all of the, all of the things, all of the IEPs and all these, these documents. But, you know, having it accessible online is really important. I think it's great because you're able 
to share online. And I think that's such an important piece of any team is being able to share information quickly. Um, So how can we utilize technology to do just that? Um, But even more important, I feel like the advocacy piece of all of this is what I'm really interested in. Um, You know, parents, when they have a new diagnosis, they're just starting to get, you know, into the special needs community. I feel like a lot of times, you know, it's isolating. They don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn. They don't have a community of support. Um, So I love that this app is integrating all of those things and makes it really accessible for parents to learn information, to realize what their rights are. Um, A lot of times I feel like parents don't even understand what rights they have in the whole IEP process. It's incredible. I mean, we, we just, I was in an event last night and, and these were sophisticated parents who, you know, have done research. They, they, they've, they've done amazing advocacy for their child. And there were literally two parents, two different parents who one said, I didn't know I had a right to this service until I ran into somebody at a gas station. I mean, this is like you said, it's 2019. Yeah. Why are we, why are we, why do we need to run into people randomly to figure stuff out? And the other parent said he found out about a service 13 years after he had a right to it for his child. The 13 years of missed opportunity, missed service for that child. And of course, it's not the parent's fault. It's this, these archaic systems that are about compliance and there's a lot of acronyms and bureaucracy to fight through. It's tough. Right. And I feel like, especially in the early stages of a diagnosis, the family is going through so much, right? They're trying to find the right supports. They're trying to navigate all of these disciplines occupational therapy, speech therapy, you know, behavior therapy, all these things. Um, and so it's, it's overwhelming, you know, okay. not to mention the huge piece of, you know, sometimes grief and all these things that go along with having chi- a child with special needs. Um, you know, it's just, I'm sure parents are overwhelmed and anything that can ease that overwhelm um, and give information quickly, I think is a good thing. So. Yeah, it is such a painful combination of you have this there's a great book um i don't know if you've read it by dr rita eichenstein called not what i expected and it talks yep. about the stages of of grief and you know it's a beautiful articulation of the challenges that parents go through and it's not a linear thing right you can bounce around depending on what happens and a lot of what kind of triggers the the grief and denial is that you run into these systems and there are a lot of amazing people on each of these systems. It's not the people in the system. It's mm-hmm. that it's just set up so that it's you have to fight and you have to kind of sift through all this confusing information to find what's right for your child. Absolutely. Um, Jason, are you able to walk us through your experience? You know, I, I think that it's really important for practitioners and we have a lot of practitioners that are listening to this podcast. Um, it's really important for us to understand a parent's perspective. Um, so I'd love to hear, you know, your experience going through the initial stages of diagnosis and um, your journey. Yeah. The, the, I So Noah was born uh, on the day I started my last company, which is kind of a pretty wild situation because you're trying to start a company. And then at the same time, you have this beautiful boy who you don't, you don't know what's going on with him. And he was our first child. So we didn't know, I mean, he was missing his milestones from day one. Mm-hmm. Um, he was healthy in kind of a medical sense. Like he didn't have any, he didn't have any issues with heart or lungs or sickness, but he wasn't, he wasn't rolling over. He wasn't tracking. And so 
you know, arguably we missed some of those early signs because we didn't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. Um, And then our pediatrician, who was, she is just amazing at the two month mark. She said, you've got to go to regional center, which in California is the place you go for kind of early intervention. And she referred us to a neurologist, a geneticist. And it was from that point, it was two months to four years old. When Noah was four years old, we had no clue what was going on with him. We knew the presentation. He wasn't babbling. He wasn't on the path for verbal communication. He had no coordination of movement. He could move his legs and arms, but they were uncontrolled movements. He got seizures at one year old, which was just another kind of blow, you know, emotionally and mentally, because we were still on this diagnostic journey that we didn't have a clue. And, you know, we had a, a number of, um, specialist doctors who just, uh, I'll say they didn't have a great bedside manner. We had one, when we had, when he had his first seizure, we went to the emergency room. We had a doctor come in, geneticist, world-renowned geneticist here, LA hospital, come in and say, oh, Noah has X. And she runs out of the room and we go, of course, we go to Google and we search for X and X, I forget the the diagnosis has been so many years now, but that basically says your, your child will not live past two. <gasps> And this is, you know, we're in the middle of this emergency, lost, trying to understand how to help our child. And this super specialist comes in and just drops that on us with, without any context. And so we had a number of experiences like that where you'd have these specialists who would bring, you know, they invented a hammer and everything looked like a nail, right? So whatever they were looking for, given their specialty was what they were they wouldn't see the whole child. They wouldn't talk to us in kind of a holistic way about what are your family goals? What are your challenges? And so that was, that was brutal. When he turned four, we, on a whim, we went to North Carolina um, and went to a, an amazing group of doctors that um, were doing some experiments on cord blood. We were, so we met with a geneticist, a, a neurologist, uh, a number of developmental pediatrician and they were all kind of flummoxed as well as everybody else. And on the last day we were going to meet with this neurologist. Uh, and I said to my wife, my mother-in-law was there too. God bless her. It was great to have her there with us. I said to my wife, let's just go home. This is a waste of time. Like we've been searching for this for four years. No one needs to get home. I need to get home. And my mother-in-law said, listen, knucklehead, like we're here, we're going to see this neurologist. And we meet the, the neurologist and he says, I just read a report about 20 people in the world have been diagnosed with this thing called Fox G1. The way they describe these 20 people, Noah fits that picture. So let's test for that. And lo and behold, that was the diagnosis. Wow. And what was the feeling that you had once you finally received a diagnosis after four years? I mean, that's a long time to be right. going to doctors. And of course, it's not one doctor, right? It's, it's right. you might have a neurologist, but you might have to go to 10 neurologists because right. you're not getting the answers that you want. Um, so right. what was that like when you finally did get a diagnosis? You know, I would say there was relief. Like we had finally had a name for this thing and and, and now a community, but in reality, it was a community at that time of 20 people and there wasn't a lot known about what it was. So in in some respects, we, it didn't change much. Um, And by that time, one thing I will say, which has just been amazing for us as a family is we were fortunate enough to find a team to support Noah and meet him where he was at and what we could build off in terms of his strengths on the therapy side, uh, especially. 
so we pre-diagnosis, we had gotten to this spot after four years of scrambling with regional center and the school system. We finally got to the spot where we were in a great place there. We got the diagnosis and basically it didn't change that. We just kept going in terms of his speech therapy, his PT, OT, and um, schooling environment. And I think there's this, um, you hear a lot of times in the therapeutic community, you know, diagnosis at some level doesn't matter, right? Like we treat the symptoms that we see. Um, And I think it's important, you know, for parents who are, you know, maybe trying to find a diagnosis and trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. I think it's important to prioritize the therapeutic supports that we know can start helping right off the bat. Um, You know, I think that a lot of times parents are just trying to search for some name for what's going on. And I think that that label is helpful because I think like you mentioned, it gives you some answers. It gives you some sense of community, but it's really important to not wait for a diagnosis to get the right supports that you need. Yeah, that's right. And that's what we loved about our pediatrician is she just kept pushing us like, Hey, that diagnosis is one thing, but here are the services you should have access to and get to work. I mean, this is you know, obviously it's understandable you're grieving, it's understandable you're searching for answers, but the real answer for Noah right now is get him the support services and start trying different things to help him. Yeah. So now I want to talk a little bit about the communication journey. You know, obviously we have a podcast right. dedicated to AAC. Um, so what was Noah's journey when it came to communication? And, you know, tell us a little bit about that experience. You know, I, I, it's funny. We, we, we had, we had struggles with this. Um, and I would say, you know, from early on, we had support. We had different speech therapists from regional center, uh, from the schools, private, and it was tough because he was nonverbal and there was no diagnosis and there was no understanding of his mental capacity given all of that. And it was kind of transactional for many years where we'd have therapists come in and say, okay, let's try this technique or that technique. They'd try it for a little bit and then kind of move on. And we didn't really get to a spot where I feel like, and this is, you know, there's, there's some deep guilt on this for sure, but also just like trying to think about how we could have done it differently. We didn't really get to a spot a good spot on the communication side until just an amazing therapist from his school took the time and sat down with us and really tried to get the whole picture and understand what's been tried, what seems to work, what, what engages Noah, which is always, it's amazing that that, that question doesn't get asked early in, in a lot of different therapies. Like what does Noah love? What does he care about? Like, what makes him smile? Like, what, is, what do his brothers do? So she did all of that. And it was just, it shifted the whole approach and conversation. And so from there, um, we started doing choice, uh, choice making, um, first with objects, and then we transitioned to, to pictures and started to build up on that and start to understand that he, at least at a base level, he could could and wanted to make choices. He just, cause he, I mean, the other thing to say, he wasn't just nonverbal. He also had movement issues. So he could reach for things, but he would have repetitive, repetitive action mm-hmm. uh, that wasn't purposeful per se, at least in terms of communication. So what we discovered ultimately with this amazing therapist from the school who 
I have to say, like, she, she just, you, you know, school therapists, I mean, you know, therapists generally, right? Like they don't have a lot of time. They're running from child to child. They don't have the support or resources to, to do exactly what she did, but she just did it. She went above and beyond. And so she just kept working with Noah, working with Noah and working with us to make sure we were doing it at home. And so we built up from there. And now, now we're actually testing a, a Toby uh, eye gaze tracking device as part of uh, the, the sort of progression of that. Amazing. And I think that, like you said, we know that therapists are very busy. They have huge caseloads a lot of times, especially in the schools. But it can be such a groundbreaking and meaningful and profound experience from just taking a little extra, right? Just a yeah, little extra exactly. time and energy to sit down and talk with you know the family of the child that you're working with, um, especially for these cases that are more complex where you know communication isn't happening naturally. I think sometimes the inclination um, from clinicians who aren't experienced with that is like, I can't rock the boat because I'm not exactly sure what's going on. So like, let me just do what the last therapist was doing, or let me just right. follow these IEP goals that you know were put in my lap. And I think it's a lot of times fear-based. And I think that that's part of what this podcast is trying to do is trying to help educate clinicians who might not have experience with children with complex communication needs, um, you know, at the very least saying, okay, there can be way more for these kids. Um, And if I can't do it myself, I need to find somebody or refer somebody that can do it. And so I think it's so important to to, to take that extra step. As you mentioned, I mean, it can make all the difference in the world for a child and their family. Oh, it's so true. And I think I love that, that point of there's the extra step on the front end to try and really understand the child. And then there's the extra, I mean, it's sort of the humbleness and the wherewithal to say, maybe I can't help, but let's think about other options. You know, typically it would end up, Hey, we've tried what we could, you know, I've done what I can was basically the punchline in in a lot of these conversations or we're, you know, we've reached the end of the number of therapeutic sessions. And so it was just this like hard break, no pointers or guideposts of where to go to from there. So, and I think in, in situations like that, where you're constantly trying and trying and trying as a parent to help your child, to help your child communicate, to believe that there's more and to keep having people and practitioners who are experts, you know, speech therapists who that's what they do for a living um, saying, I'm sorry, like, I don't, I don't know, or I can't help. Um, You know, how as a parent, do you find the reserve of energy to say, keep going, you know, because I think a lot of times you, you keep hitting a wall and eventually you, you stop trying. Um, so what was your experience with that? What is some insight that you might be able to offer to parents who are at kind of the end of their rope? It's funny. Like, I, I mean, I'll, I'll say just, I, I, I've run into the end of the rope and we've run into the end of the rope a number of times. And, you know, we will we'll wallow in that for a while and, you know, we'll just, we have gotten to points where we've accepted defeat. I mean, just to be candid and um, you know, the thing that keeps pulling us out of that is first Noah and, and just obviously he, he uh, seeing him every day and knowing that we need to do everything we can to help him communicate by any means necessary. And so that's sort of getting that energy from Noah and that, that inspiration from Noah is one thing. And then I think another big thing is that, it, and you mentioned this earlier, but, this can be such an isolating life if you choose to make it isolating. But there are so many amazing people that are there that, that want to help. And you, you have to do the work to find them. Um, and, uh, you know, so support groups, whether it's online or offline. I encourage, I, I try and push people, a lot of people to, to get offline. 
because uh, the online stuff is hard. There's not a lot of context and connection. It's, it's kind of fat, rapid fire. Hey, you should do this. You should do that. And so this, this event that I was at last night that I referred to is run by the United Cerebral Palsy and it's this parent support group and it's an old school support group, but to, to be there and, and to talk to parents, we call it seeing the future, right? Parents who have older children, see where they're at and talk about the same struggles. And it's not, you know, you should have done this or you should have done that. But have, so having that, that support group and the, the more offline, the better if possible would be my, my number one recommendation. I think that's a really good point. I think when you're on, and don't get me wrong, online forums on Facebook yeah. and things like that are very helpful and they're a good first step. But I think that you're right. It's kind of one-offs, right? It's like, right. oh, do this for this specific thing or do this. Um, you don't, you're not able to meet, to really formulate meaningful connections oftentimes that's because right. you're, you're sending a post about, I need help with this or what's your experience with this. It's just you know bite-sized pieces. Whereas if you have an ongoing community that you have a monthly meeting with, or, you know, you start building connections, it's so much more supportive, right? Because it becomes less about, you know, this specific issue with my child. And then it, it, it's more holistic, right? You can talk about your child, but you can also talk about other things that impact, you know, your life, having a child with special needs. So I think that's really a, a really great piece of advice. The other thing that I love that you just said, seeing the future. And we talk a lot about this on our podcast, because I think a lot of times when teachers or SLPs or parents, they start using a device with their child to help them start communicating. It's, they don't really have a clear picture as to what it's going to look like down the line and what it could potentially look like. Um, and so we're always trying to find you know, users who have been using AAC and use it proficiently mm. to showcase that. Because I think a lot of times it's hard to see what that could potentially look like. We have an episode, Chris Klein, uh, we had on, he's a AAC user. Um, so all of our listeners who haven't listened to that episode, I would highly recommend going back. Um, he can play his device. I say play because it looks like he's playing a piano. If you see him, wow. um, the video of him. And so it's just, it's amazing. He is so eloquent. And you know, if you were reading an email from him, you would never know that he's a device user. You would never right. know. Um, and so it's just really important to see the future in a lot of ways, um, not only from you know a diagnostic standpoint, but also just from an AAC standpoint, seeing what's possible because I think that then that inspires the entire team. Look what we could potentially do. Um, and I think starting with that belief is the foundation. You have to start with the belief that every child is capable of communicating in ways that you can't even imagine at this point. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I loved the therapist I mentioned. Her name is Sarah. She, um, you know, just connecting to what Noah loves and, and um, you know, how, how does he communicate today? You know, she could, she could connect in on that and then she could connect it to other students that she's worked with and, and say, okay, what, based on those, those loves or strengths, like how did it work with them and how can I bring that to Noah? And so, you know, seeing that, that future of what's possible and building off of those kind of kernels of, um, you know, the starting points of strengths and loves. Absolutely. And finding things that really excite Noah, because isn't that the point, you know, isn't that the point of communication is to connect with people and to laugh and to, to, to have it bring you joy. You know, I think that a lot of times we lose sight of that as SLPs, we get into this zone of, okay, 
I, I need to make these goals happen right. and I need yeah. to start at this foundational level where we're doing all these things. And then slowly like, you drift from starting from a good place, obviously, yeah. but then it drifts into something that, you know, is not fun. Um, it's not motivating and it doesn't work. Yeah. And we know that communication, the underlying, it has to be motivating. Someone yeah, has to be motivated. Otherwise they're not going to do it. This is, I know this is a, a sp about speech, but I think it's a helpful example for therapists. We have uh, an amazing physical therapist as well. And, and we were telling her that over the break, we had taken Noah and his walker and, and out and did a, a hike with his walker. And she went just to this point, she went from the 30 reciprocal steps IEP goal to, okay, we're going to get him outside on uneven territory, we're going to get him bigger wheels for his walkers so we can do more. What 10-year-old boy wouldn't want to be running around outside rather than down the hallway doing 30 reciprocal steps? Absolutely. And just remembering that. I think that it's, it's like any profession, you kind of become desensitized in a lot of ways and there's nothing you can do about that. But remind yourself, this is a child. Kids like to have fun. So do adults. Um, how can we make this not only fun, but also functional and, you know, exciting, like, you know, taking the same thing, you could very easily shift one thing and all of a sudden it becomes the coolest, most fun activity. And so I yeah. think it's just, you know, a constant reminder to, to keep challenging yourself to, to make sure that you're prioritizing those things. Yeah, that's great. So I'm really excited about your podcast. I want to hear all about it um, because, you know, obviously we have a podcast, so we're, we're, we're podcast people and so are the, the listeners that are listening. Um, so what inspired your podcast and what is it all about? So what inspired it was that um, a good friend of mine, her name is Elizabeth Aquino, um, and I were talking and, and she has an adult daughter who uh, has uh, medical complexities. And you know, we were talking and she was talking about her community and how she has these conversations that she can't have with anybody else. And, and I was saying the same. And we said, well, let's do a podcast and let's let's have we call it conversations with our kinds of celebrities, basically people who are living this life as caregivers and, you know, the challenges they face and, you know, how they're overcoming those challenges. And it's not, it's not meant to be, we call it the grit and the grace. So it's not meant to be all about the grace and everything's amazing. It's what we also want to get into the grit side of things. And so we, we've had just a number of amazing conversations with different people, different walks of life. A couple of my favorites is we, we talked to, the, um, the leader of Little Lobbyist, which if your audience hasn't heard of them, they should look them up. It's this amazing group of families who got together. They have medically complex children and they literally rolled around Capitol Hill knocking on doors and being lobbyists, right? So they're, it's, it's sort of them versus the medical industry or Mitch McConnell uh, trying to overturn uh, the ACA. And so the little obvious one. And so it's just great to talk to, to parents like that. To the point of grit, the conversation was, I mean, sure, we talked about that, but it was also her struggles in this work life, but then trying to balance that with her child's medical needs and challenges and all the sort of day-to-day -day stuff that the family has to deal with. So that, that's why we're doing the podcast. We want to have those kind of conversations and share that with other caregivers. And where can people find the podcast if they're interested in listening? So it's called Who Lives Like This? Um, and the, the URL is wholiveslikethispodcast.com. So you can find past episodes and download the podcast from there. Perfect. And we will definitely link to those in our show notes. Uh, Jason, we always ask all of the people that come on this podcast one question. If you had a billboard that everyone could read, uh, what would it say? 
So I'm not a big quote person, but I, I was lucky uh, this week. I, I was sitting in a, um, a appointment coordinator's office at a hospital, which for the family listeners, uh, no, that's one of the worst places to be because it's usually like, oh, there's no availability and what's your insurance card again and you owe us money. And I look up and I see uh, Dory with the words, just keep swimming. And this, the, the coordinator had that picture on her wall. And she also turned out to be this amazing coordinator, which is not always the case. I mean, she, she went out of her way to get Noah this appointment that we were really eager to get, and she got it faster than what would have happened otherwise. And so I thought the two of those together was a great, so I would, I would put Just Keep Swimming on, on my billboard. And I think that's such a great sentiment that we already kind of talked about, but I think it's so important to just maybe take some reprieve. Sometimes, you know, you can't always feel like, I can do this. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to push forward. I think sometimes you need reprieve from that and you need to just stay still and maybe grieve or go through whatever emotions that are coming up for you. But I think, you know, finding ways that can help inspire you to keep going. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like your podcast is a really great uh, inspirational tool. Um, hopefully our podcast can be, you know, that inspiration that some parents and families need. And, you know, from the practitioner side, I think it's important, you know, too, I think that we could all keep swimming um, and keep trying a little bit harder to do a little bit more for families and a little bit, take a little bit more time to individualize our services um, and go above and beyond. Um, You know, I know that with the current state of caseloads and there's a huge need, right? And there's not enough therapists. So unfortunately we have a huge plate of work um, to do, but I think it does make all the difference in the world. So I think that's a perfect sentiment. Yeah. I love, I love that. And, and um, the, you know, I think you hit on this earlier, but I think it's worth underlining. Like I know, I definitely have deep empathy for therapists and practitioners because the, the caseloads are high, parents are stressed, and they're looking for silver bullets, right? That's that's a pretty tough context to be working in. But, you know, you mentioned this earlier that to, to take that extra step or that extra beat to step back and, and try and understand where the family and the child's coming from. And, and I, I, I say this to parents as well when they're engaging with therapists. Like if, if both sides could just do that, like the impact for the child, I think just increases significantly. Absolutely. Well, Jason, thank you so much for coming on. I'm so excited to talk with you and also to share your podcast. Um, I'm excited to see what your app, you know, all the stages of this beta phase will show. Um, And if you guys are interested, we will link to all the appropriate links in the, the podcast notes. But I just really appreciate your perspective, Jason, and I'm really excited to share it with our community. Well, thanks for having me and and thank you and to the team for this podcast. It's been wonderful for us as a family. We really appreciate the resource that you're building for families and therapists. Well, we'd love to hear that. Um, And we'd love to hear from you. So please, if you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast. Um, You can join our Facebook group. There's lots of really great conversations that go on in there. For Talking With Tech, I'm here with Jason Lumbeck uh, and my name's Rachel Madel and we will talk to you guys next week. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.